Hello, everybody. Welcome to Chapter 10. I am so excited that this podcast has made it this far. These continue to be just an absolute joy to produce, and I hope you're all enjoying listening to them. Uh, as always, this podcast is entirely listener-supported. You can contribute by heading over to patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks. Uh, that's also a great place to ask me questions about the podcast and sort of, I don't know, get into it. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much for listening, and uh, let's get on with Chapter 10, Dinner and a Show. Boschmansier, a novel by Strangely Duesberg, read by the author. Chapter 10, Dinner and a Show. Confidence is almost the entirety of what one needs to perform. It is not enough to simply possess the skills required to juggle hammers or play an instrument. One must also be able to hold an audience. And key to this is the self-assurance that an audience is supposed to be looking at you. Kells, with her tremendous demonstration of audience wrangling, had left Eleanor a bit intimidated. She is the consummate performer, to be sure, but Kells is very good, perhaps even better. Eleanor is no stranger to holding her chin high and moving through new places as if she belongs there. For nearly two decades, she has moved through the world with no fixed address, no plan, and very few connections. And yet, she never lacks for her basic needs. Often, she arrives in a place knowing nobody. Soon, she finds a venue displays her peculiar skill, and invariably somebody offers her a place to stay. So when the restaurant Kells takes Eleanor to turns out to be very fancy indeed, she hesitates, but it is short-lived. The host is looking at them through the windows, eyebrow raised as if to ask, how dare they? Eleanor leans in close to Kells. This place? Kells puffs up. Yes, this place. It's the nicest place in the neighborhood, and we have the money to pay for it. As long as the wine's not too expensive. Eleanor looks at the bored-looking man behind the little podium inside the restaurant. He is glaring at her. She scowls back. You know what? I think you're right. I don't like his attitude. I've got an idea. I'll only speak French as we arrive, and you follow along and apologize for me as if I'm someone very, very important. It always scares the living daylights out of folks like him. Kells bursts out laughing. But I don't speak French. All the better, Eleanor says slyly. Just nod and say d'accord as much as you can. Just agree with whatever you say? Yes. They both laugh. Eleanor checks her appearance reflected in the glass. With a sniff, she tosses her chin and almost kicks open the door. She bursts in, majestic and terrifying, filling the space with the crackling electricity of a most compelling performer. Her eyes sweep over the foyer, the startled host, the plethora of empty tables in the restaurant beyond. C'est bon. She sweeps past the sputtering man and into the restaurant. Uh, uh, excuse me, miss, you can't just... He starts to walk out from behind his podium, only to have his way blocked by an apologetic Kells. Hello. She holds out her hand. I'm terribly sorry. Not sure if you know who she is. I believe there's a reservation for two at 1 p.m.? The man sighs. Name? Kells realizes she doesn't know Eleanor's last name. Oh well, more fun for her. De Montefiore. He instantly looks up at her, scorn plain in his tone. Sorry, we don't have a reservation under that name. Also, attired like that, I'm not sure that you belong in... 
From the dining room comes the sound of Eleanor clapping her hands and shouting loud commands in French. The maitre d', flanked by a pair of terrified waiters, sweeps forward. Pardon, mademoiselle. Eleanor rounds on the man, eyes flashing. Kells apologizes to the host and also dashes past him, toward the impending confrontation with the maitre d'. Eleanor has calmed a bit. She flashes a smile at the man. Ah, tu parles français. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Oui, ma table. Chali. The man sputters some very poor French, trying to ask her to slow down. Eleanor's manner again edges into apoplectic territories. A stream of French curses is delivered at the man in a quiet voice, barely above a growl. Other customers begin to look up from their own meals, curiosity pushing them to abandon the sacred conventions of public eateries. Kells steps in. Pardon me, I'm so sorry about this. I take it you didn't recognize Mademoiselle de Montefiore. The maitre d', now on balance, speaking in English, turns to Kells, ready to dismiss them both. No, I have not. We have rules here, and this sort of thing is... Eleanor says something to Kells. The words mean nothing to her, but the tone is annoyed, with a hint of mortification. Kells nods. D'accord. Eleanor's hissing angry French continues as Kells turns to the man, trying to look as apologetic as she can. You see, the lunch was supposed to be booked by her assistant, who was recently caught stealing from her. She's obviously had to fire the man, and... Kells feigns listening to more of Eleanor's story, information she relays to the maitre d'. She's heard this restaurant has an impeccable reputation and clientele with discerning taste. Please, sir, my friend has come a long way, and she's used to a different way of doing things. Generally, the staff at establishments have been warned she's coming. The man seems uncertain, though with the reputation of his restaurant now on the line, he is willing to entertain the notion. Kells has him. Smooth as bourbon, she slips a large bill into the pocket of the man's vest. Tell you what, why don't you get us a quiet table where no one will bother us, photographers, that sort of thing, and we'll forget this ever happened. For the first time, he smiles. Money has greased the wheels. The bribe, which Kells had calculated with care to be large, yet not so large as to insult the man, has executed a perfect landing. He gives a slight bow toward Eleanor, who has again subsided, and gestures toward the back of the establishment. B pardon, mademoiselle, this way, s'il vous plaît. They are soon seated at a small booth far from the other patrons of the restaurant. As soon as they are alone with their menus, they burst out laughing. Eleanor can feel the color rising in her cheeks. My goodness, the look on that man's face when it dawned on him that I might be someone very important who could potentially ruin him. I know, Kells wheezes, eyes moist with mirth. I was so worried they'd bodily throw us out. No, I don't expect they would dare. Places like this are so often frequented by the rich and litigious. Eleanor giggles and begins to study the menu. So, are you going to treat your famous friend to a fancy meal or what? You know, I think I'd like to let you order for me if that's all right. Kells laughs. Of course, Mademoiselle de Montefiore. Goodness me, de Montefiore. Why did you choose that? I had to think on my feet. Not always the easiest thing to do, especially when I'm also chasing your stormy bum into a restaurant full of terrified waiters. I saved lives today. Eleanor's face becomes stony all of a sudden. Serious. Pray you needn't do it again. They stare at one another for a long moment. Then Eleanor's poker face collapses, cracking apart in another fit of giggles. They stifle their laughter as a waiter approaches. He is young, 
and terrified, assigned to this table as a punishment for some past sin. His job hangs in the balance. Kells orders an assortment of appetizers and two entrees. She requests the young man bring two bottles of the house wine, one red and one white. Just before the youth leaves, Eleanor grabs his sleeve. He whitens as her eyes lock onto his. One more thing, she whispers. Can you keep a secret? He swallows hard, confused that he can understand her, but still intimidated. We're not actually frightening at all. We just wanted to have a bit of fun. We're famous actresses, and we don't like being bothered in restaurants, or bothering to make reservations for that matter. So, if you'd be a lamb and bring us what we order and not tell anyone I'm not French, I'd be much obliged to you. She produces a banknote from nowhere. He blinks in surprise, stares at the money and at the woman holding it. A slow smile spreads across his face. His job is safe provided he keeps up appearances with this pair of charlatans. He winks, tapping the side of his nose. Yes, ma'am. I think we understand one another perfectly. Their meal is long and lingering. The sun goes down outside and candles are lit. At some point, the afternoon long ago having passed its hat to the evening, they arrive at dessert. The waiter brings a teetering confection of sugar and ice. A fantasia of whipped turrets topped with brass cups filled with bourbon set alight. As they finish dessert, the waiter returns to their table. The youth is fighting a valiant, but losing battle to suppress his own hissing laughter. What is it? Kells asks, worried. Well, says the waiter, leaning down to whisper to them. It seems, word of your arrival, the incident, you ranting in French, the whole works, got back to the restaurant's owner. Eleanor claps a hand over her mouth as Kells' eyes widen with fright. Oh no! No, wait, it's all right. The waiter flails his hands, shaking with excitement. He was furious, absolutely livid at the staff for obstructing your passage and not seating you immediately. Everybody you talked to on your way in got yelled at over the phone. He's off on safari or something like that. I don't know, he's very rich. Seems he knows a Mademoiselle de Montefiore personally old school chum or something. You're joking. Kel sits back, dazed. Absolutely not. And to cap it all off, he's angry that I was the one assigned to your table and that the maitre d' isn't seeing to you personally. I passed along the message that you didn't wish to see any other member of the staff, that you were livid, but that I'd smoothed it over. They all snicker. Eleanor claps, affecting a French accent. This is fantastique. But wait, it gets better. The waiter confides, eyes streaming. Your meal has been comped, and I've been promised a substantial bonus this month for somehow smoothing things over with you. I may even be promoted. Well, all's well that ends well, I suppose, says Kells, still shocked at the success of their ruse. She looks at Eleanor with curiosity seeing things perhaps not visible before. Her regard is noticed. All of a sudden, she finds one of the waiter's buttons very interesting. When they are alone again, Kells touches Eleanor's hand. So, lady, since we don't have to pay the bill, what do you want to do? I have an idea. It might just make things even worse for some of the folks here, but the meal was delicious and we did so upset everything. I would feel bad if anyone got fired on our account says Eleanor. Ten minutes later, they come striding through the dining room, 
a cheerful pair dancing about and singing, buoyed by high spirits and no little amount of wine. After a moment, they separate, Eleanor pinning the mater d' to the wall with her eyes. She walks up to the terrified man and gives him a kiss on the cheek. Merci beaucoup, monsieur. He smiles and nods, genteel and grateful to be forgiven. Je vous en prie. She repeats this performance on the host at the front door and then sweeps into the kitchen where Kells has already been capering about, juggling knives for the astonished cooks. Eleanor gives a large amount of money to each of them and then walks over and kisses the dishwasher. The young man, who has yet to see twenty, reddens as the other cooks cheer. Eleanor and Kells take each other's hands and bow. The cooks break into applause, whistling and hooting. Laughing, they dash out the back door into the cozy dark of evening. The sounds of their merriment echoing off the buildings and up into the rafters of the crisp night. It is one of those grand and perfect nights, the temperature cold, the sky high and velvet and wide. Imagine such a night. You wear a scarf and your warmest coat, but not a hat. There is only the hint of a cold breeze and you welcome it tousling your hair, almost like a lover for that dark lover winter will soon be all around you. The cold and gloom is coming, and the sorrow of a world frozen hard, bereft of flowers. But for a time you do not think of that. Instead, all you feel in the cold air is the promise of snow, that purest of elements that turns even the most dingy scene into a fairyland of soft edges, the most somber of fields into a potential skirmish of snowballs. Perhaps, as you walk about on this evening, you find a stall selling something warm and spiced, bearing with it scents you know from childhood, the rich and earthy odors of cinnamon, nutmeg, and clove, the promise of sweet things, of holidays, of flannel pajamas, or perhaps not. For you, the joy of such a night is a slow walk down streets you have always known, or have never seen. You glory in the temporary transformation of reds and golds illuminated by the street lights, the fallen leaves forming a loam that is, after a fashion, a kind of snow, which has fallen from trees soon to sleep. How much more pleasant is such a night when it is shared, as it was for Eleanor and Kells. Far above our wandering pair, scrambling up a drain pipe and over a power line, Slice is not having a good night. After the unpleasant encounter with the not-mice yesterday, the search for food had proved less than meatful. It had meandered to all of the usual spots, hoping for some scraps, but nothing had materialized. It wasn't the deprivation that had Slice in such a foul mood. Food was not always plentiful for a mangy cat on the streets, especially not this late in the year. Cold weather often meant hard times, and Slice was no stranger to the rumble of a hungry belly. But this is something more, something almost personal, as if the not-mice had conspired to hide all of the food. These thoughts are troubling to a creature used to living on nothing but instinct, dashing from the need for food to a warm place to rest, stopping along the way to investigate something or other. Slice has spent the last few hours stalking the fat city pigeons around a large open square without success. It is time to try something new. Slice considers places of refuge from the past, but everything is muddled in his memory as old as this cat possesses. There was a small child who used to feed it, but then one day Slice had returned and found a grown man. 
The man had stared in a melancholy way at the poor excuse for a cat yawling on the doorstep. Underground is always a good place to find things to eat, but the desire to avoid the not-mice still remains strong. Thus far, Slice has avoided many of the usual passages, tunnels, and even most of the lower streets, preferring the relative safety of the rooftops. For reasons only it can understand, Slice decides to follow the two humans it had seen walking out of a building a moment before. After some rambling time, it allows itself to be seen. As the humans look at it, Slice looks back at them, eyes bold. One of the humans seems familiar, like someone it had known a lifetime ago, or seen yesterday. With humans, familiarity could mean affection. Perhaps this one would feed it. The shorter human recoils, disgusted. Slice is used to this sort of thing. The cat attempts to make its eyes bigger and softer. Humans love this. It looks at the taller human, the one that seems familiar. This one seems less affronted. She bends down and holds out her hand to the creature. Hmm, mm-hmm, says the taller human. She stands up, staring down at the cat, biting her lip in thought. Slice turns its head to one side. Something is being offered. Food? The woman is waving across the road. Something is being offered, but what in return? She starts to walk. Slice follows. She makes a clicking sound. It seems friendly enough. The three of them, Slice, the tall woman, and the short woman who does not like Slice as much as the tall woman, cross the road and soon stand outside a shop. A shop! The woman is going to buy food. Slice is excited, but cautious. Humans are full of tricks and traps, but this one has no scent of deceit at all. Slice knows what lies smell like, an odor like that of the knot mice, something false. The tall woman is about to enter the store when she turns around and looks at Slice. It knows when and how to seal the deal, plopping its spiny shanks on the ground, tail twitching, black pool eyes watching the woman. She stares hard into the cat's eyes and then performs the peculiar up-and-down nose motion humans seem to do when they are happy or lying. She goes inside. Slice sits and watches the door she has just entered. The short woman seems a bit uncomfortable. She fidgets. Why does she not clean herself, Slice wonders. Why do humans not clean themselves when they are still? It licks the back of a withered paw and spreads the spittle behind an ear. Perhaps they like to be dirty, as dogs do. <laughs> the short woman says. Slice acknowledges her presence with a flick of an ear, but otherwise does not take its eyes off the door. This human has not offered anything. She is not important. Perhaps later, but not yet. The smaller woman snorts, a loud sound. Slice flicks an ear. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Slice sneezes in response to this. The words are lost on the cat, but the tone is unmistakable. The human has insulted it. The cat ponders, lounging back and pointing its backside at the woman, then licking itself, but decides not to. The tall woman may come back and become angry to see her companion so insulted. Slice has made the right choice, for not a moment later the door opens. Here is the tall woman again. She has a small white box and something wrapped in paper. Fish. The packet is waved in Slice's direction, accompanied by the same clicking noise. She smiles at her companion, but the short woman still seems unconvinced. The tall woman inclines her head away from the shop and leads the way to a bench on the sidewalk. The women sit on the bench, and the tall one pulls a small blade out of her pocket and cuts open the little white box. She sets it down on the pavement in front of her. It is milk. Slice stretches its head forward but makes no move to get closer to the women. The tall woman stands up, lifts the box carefully, and sets it much closer to the cat. She backs away to sit on the bench again, never taking her eyes off of it. Warily, Slice moves forward a step, then freezes. The woman makes no move. Slice moves forward once more, cautious. When it becomes clear that these mysterious benefactors will not move, it begins to lap at the milk with a dainty tongue, eyes still fixed on them. The milk is good, though cold. Slice can feel it flowing down into its belly. The cat is already preparing itself for the slight pain that will come when its shrunken stomach is stretched full. This is part of life for an alley cat, feast and famine, but always survival. After most of the milk is gone, the woman unwraps the fish and once more walks forward to place it on the paving stones a safe distance away from her. It is a whole fish, gutted but still containing the eyes. A rare treat. Slice yawns so as not to appear impressed, and with slow, mincing movements picks up the fish in its jaws. Disdainful, it turns to go, but then stops. Things are not as they once were. Slice knows that it is old, slower than it used to be, and there are the not-mice to think of as well. It ponders, tail twitching. These women might have a home and a desire for a cat. Many cats often lived with humans and the humans fed them. It was the life of a prisoner, but Slice was cunning. It could always escape later. Once... Many years ago, during a particularly cold winter, it had found a family which was feeding several stray cats. Slice had ingratiated itself to the family and even been let in to sleep in a sort of lean-to behind their house with the other cats. It was appalled to be so close to its competitors, some of which were even enemies. The cold, though, had won out overall, and many grudges were put aside until spring. Until thaw. Then, life resumed much as it always had. Yes, Slice will live with these humans and escape when it wants to, perhaps when the not-mice are no longer abroad. There is also the thing with the not-mice, though Slice does not want to think about that. Slice widens its eyes and turns around, hoping to look helpless. It slinks to within a few feet of the humans and drops the fish. Sitting gingerly on its haunches, muscles still coiled spring away. It starts eating the fish. Soon, the two women are talking, the taller one making cooing noises amidst her words. Slice believes she is stating her intention of caring for it, 
this is a good plan. For now. When the humans get up to walk away, Slice follows them, testing. They seem happy with the cat's company, and Slice finds itself walking closer and closer to them. Their meanderings bring them to a building, which they all enter. It is one of the large human homes with many smaller homes inside it, all full of humans who do not know each other. They enter one of these, and Slice finds to its delight that there are many soft things to sleep on. The floor is strewn with strange objects beyond count. Slice walks among them, curious, sniffing. All the things spread about have the scent of the tall human, but the home is that of the shorter human. Yet more strangeness to ponder. The humans talk to one another for a time, and then the tall human goes into another room, and Slice hears the sound of rushing water. This was a mistake. The cat begins to feel anxious. Slice has never liked water. The tall woman returns and makes strong eye contact with the cat. She says something, her eyes locked on Slice's. The woman is waving her arms at Slice and then at the place where the sound of water continues. Slice realizes that it is a test. The woman will let it stay, let it remain, if only it will do this thing. Slice ponders. The shorter human says something, her tone derisive. The alley cat hisses at them both and stalks into the other room, past the tall human, who now seems very happy. In the room, there is a large basin. It is full of water. More water is falling down into it from a pipe full of holes. The tall woman bends to pick Slice up. Her intention is clear. She wants to put it into the water. Slice lashes out with claws bared. The woman moves her hand away, faster than most humans. Again, she waves at Slice and then at the water. It hisses at her, but, with shoulders hunched, proud and haughty, it walks over to the basin and leaps into the shallow water. Slice yowls in surprise. The water is not cold, like the rain that falls during a storm or the leaking drips of pipes in the lower city where the rats live. This water is warm, almost pleasant. Slice stretches, luxuriating in this new sensation. A rare thing for a cat so long lived. The human is soon reaching in, rubbing Slice with a cloth covered in vile white foam. But this is tolerated. Slice has learned the nature of the test and is determined to pass. The thought of the knot-mice is never very far from its mind. Sooner than it expected, the cat is free of the water, toweled off and sitting comfortably upon Eleanor's shoulder as she reads. Nearby, Kells is juggling a pair of toy cars and a minuscule tractor she has borrowed from Eleanor's pocket collection. Slice allows itself the tiniest purr, hoping the humans will not notice. Well, it looks like Slice has a warm place to sleep tonight. Uh, <laughs> I don't really have anything else to say about this chapter except for major apologies for my French pronunciations and even translations. I did get a little help with that from my dear friend Margot Pettibone, but uh, I do not claim to have any skill speaking French whatsoever. I uh, So again, uh, pardon, ne parlez-vous français. Uh, <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast or the other episodes in this series, I highly recommend you check out my other podcast, Pilot House, in which me and my dear friend Sarah Shea talk about 
uh, television shows. We watch the first episode of a TV show we've never seen, and then we comment on it. Uh, if you'd like to support Poshmancier, as I said earlier, you can just head over to patreon.com slash strangelywritesbooks. For as little as a dollar an episode, you can help so much in the production of this. Things like renting this studio space, uh, you know, buying hot tea and honey. Who am I kidding? I drink coffee with a little bit of Coca-Cola mixed in it. That was, you know, that was actually George Carlin's, like, go-to stage beverage. It was, like, room temperature coffee with a little bit of Coca-Cola in it. I know. Super weird. (laughs) Anyway, I think that's it for this week. You can find me on the Instagram and the Facebook. I am strangely, or just facebook.com slash strangely. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you all next week for Chapter 11, in which... Admon is visited.